Hi, this is Father Tim, and welcome to RTB, Read the Bible Podcast. RTB offers students a Bible reading plan with commentary and questions and answers as they go on the journey to read the Bible. Good evening, everyone. Welcome back. Hope you had a great break. Um, We took one week off for the Thanksgiving holiday, and now we are back. Going to go into the second letter of Peter. So two weeks ago, we covered the first letter of Peter, which we kind of described as the first encyclical letter. That's a letter from the Pope sent to a group of churches. We talked about how that letter was unquestionably in the early church uh, ascribed to St. Peter, the first um, of the apostles, the one of whom Jesus refers to as the rock upon which he builds his church. And of course, the papacy we come to understand as the successors to Peter. And so he is exercising his authority, sending out a letter to the churches of Asia Minor. And uh, what he was basically exhorting them to was holiness in Christian life. And we saw that in the various ways that we're called to live the holiness of Christian life, as well as to bear suffering, right? That's the huge thing that he talks about and we see continually repeated throughout the, the books of the Bible. And I kind of actually take back, there was one thing that I kind of misspoke at the end of last week's session, where I basically said that, um, that this first Peter was a little bit more about internal and then second Peter is more about external suffering. And it's actually quite the opposite. So in that first Peter, uh, it just simply misspoke. In the letter of the first Peter, we see this way to, to um, resist and sort of fight through holiness as we are facing external suffering. And that's slightly different than this letter from Second Peter, which is much more an internal, how do we deal with the internal sufferings, um, but largely, especially the internal transformation of holiness in our lives, how do we become holy from the inside out, as well as how do we deal with those within the church who are causing trouble, namely false teachers, false prophets, um, that which we've come to understand as heresy. And so 2 Peter is, uh, we can say again, in a sense, this sort of papal letter that's concerned with internal transformation of holiness and concerned with the rising false prophets, false teachers, and even a proper understanding and interpretation of scripture. So we're going to see quite a bit about how the second letter of Peter is concerned with how we interpret scripture, who can interpret scripture. And as we, before we get to the letter, some of those basic background information that we've been covering is who is the author. We'd mentioned 1 Peter. It is unanimously attested as in the early church that Peter, St. Peter himself wrote this letter. Now, interestingly enough, 2 Peter, um, there is a little bit of a debate. And if you read modern commentaries, in one sense, almost every single book um, claimed by some is up for debate. And I don't think all of that is well worth it. But actually, if we are going to look at the history of 2 Peter, this is one of the few that in the early church, there actually was a little bit of genuine debate about who wrote this letter, where it came from. Was it actually Peter himself or not? And in fact, if you read any modern commentator or kind of um, um, just sort of uh, academic work about this, if you were to claim... Uh, that this was an authentic letter from from Peter himself. Most moderns would kind of laugh you off of the uh, out of the out of the room. That almost unanimously, this is held not to be a letter of Peter. And yet, at the same time, 
more and more as deeper study of this letter is coming through, we're starting to see that perhaps that is not the case as well. That in fact, if we do look at the early church fathers, there was plenty that did attest that this is from Peter himself. And I think there would probably be no surprise that I will say that I don't think this is unreasonable to think that Peter himself wrote this, and that's largely the position that I will take. And so, without diving too much into this, because at the end of the day, we don't care as much because this is a sacred and canonical text. It is inspired word of God, regardless of who wrote it, and that's very clear to say. But at the same time, um, it's often pointed out that, for example, there wasn't some, uh, there wasn't often early church fathers in the first 200 years talking about Second Peter, and then you actually see Origen of Alexandria talking about how Peter only wrote one letter. Um, Eusebius, who's a church historian, kind of talks about how this seems to have not been um, of Peter. But even those two also in other areas kind of point to perhaps it was. And the fact is that there are plenty of early church fathers that say this was written by Peter. So of those, we have St. Athanasius and most importantly, St. Jerome. And St. Jerome, who is a very important early church father, actually not only talks about how this is written by Peter, but he also explains why people think that there is a difference. And he talks about in his writings about how Peter simply used a different, um, uh, a different carrier for this. He used a different um, scribe to write this letter, and that's the reason why um, there is a little bit of a difference in the text. And so there is a little bit of a difference in language and structure between First and Second Peter. Um, but honestly, when you start to look at what some of the reasons why the moderns say this isn't written by Peter, again, good biblical theology and good historical inquiry now is starting to show that some of these reasons are kind of silly. And I just want to talk about a couple of these. This is probably spending more time than we need to. But to give you an idea of why some people would say this isn't by Peter, is that basically part of the argumentation is that all of these other letters that we've talked about, they already claim they're not by certain authors, Paul, they're written by the early church or something like that. Many people would point out that it seems that there's a parallel between Second Peter and Jude, which there are certainly parallels, and that Peter is relying on Jude, and Jude was written much later, well after the life of Peter, so it couldn't have been written by Peter. But some of it is also just straight-out bias. There's actually quite a bit in the sort of uh, German rational school that would actually say part of the reason why we can't understand this book as written by Peter is that there's a great German word called Frühkatholicisms, which basically means early Catholicism. That this, this book looks and sounds too Catholic. And if it sounds too Catholic, it must have been written later by other people of the church, which is kind of funny when you start to think about it, because if we claim that Peter is the author of this book, he is, in fact, the first pope. So some of the claim is that this, that the pope is Catholic and that it couldn't be written by this first pope. So it's just kind of interesting that um, that this letter speaks clearly to some of the things we believe in the early, uh, that we believe today as part of the Catholic Church, I think actually speaks more beautifully that, yes, there is continuity in the Catholic Church. Other reasons is that there is a reference to Paul's writings, and especially Paul's writings as scripture. So perhaps that this letter must have been written later when Paul's 
writings were much more known. But again, if you even go back to last semester, it's quite possible and reasonable that Paul's letter were, were a lot earlier than people realized. And then the last one that's kind of often talked about is that there is a reference to the fathers and the fathers passed away. Talking about how the fathers have fallen asleep and that's in chapter 3. And that's actually where a lot of people would say that this is the whole reason for sure that we know this can't be of Peter because it's talking about these first generations of Christians now passing away. Now this is part of this second sort of generation of writings that when we start to see more Catholicism taking shape. And um, some have pointed out this, and a lot of this I'm drawing again upon the author Brent Petrie, points out that there's a fundamental mistake to understand that reference to fathers as church fathers, and in fact the church fathers and the, even the first generation of apostles never referred to themselves as fathers. That it's much more easy to understand what was referred to the fathers is the Old Testament patriarchs, the foundations of faith. And so it is very possible, very plausible, and I would say probable that this in fact is a letter written by Peter himself near the end of his life from Rome. And as you start to read this letter, you can see how actually personal this letter starts to become. And he actually draws upon eyewitness testimony. And that is very important. And so I give that sort of background because if you read any modern commentary, it's going to say pretty clearly that this was not written by Peter and written by someone else. But that's not exactly the case. And then the question would be then, okay, if it was written by Peter, who is he writing against? And why is he writing? Well, it's pretty clear he's writing against false teachers, false prophets. And this is also part of the reason why people would say this book was written later, is because one proponent of that is sort of Gnosticism, which is an early church heresy where that says, it means a number of different things, but that knowledge is most important. And you can see clearly that Second Peter does speak about knowledge, about what is real knowledge. But um, the, one of the other great theories that was put out, and again, they've drawn upon Brant Petrie, is that there was written in the early church, um, there was a man named Simon Magus. Simon Magus, you can read in Acts of the Apostles chapter 8. He's actually the, what's called the arch heretic of the church. He is one of the early, early people in the church to push against the apostles and really cause division within the church. He's the one who we get the phrase simony from because he tries to buy grace from the apostles. What's often misunderstood or not known is that actually we have writings from the early church fathers that talk about how after Simon Magus was actually kind of embarrassed in front of the apostles, he actually goes to Rome and begins to spread his errors and his heresies there. And it actually is talked about in Jerome that the reason Peter goes to Rome, or one of the reason Peter goes to Rome, is to continue to combat the heresy of Simon Magus, and which actually then provides a very clear possibility of this letter being written to fight heresy within the Church of Rome at the end of Peter's life. And I'm actually going to read a section from St. Jerome, which is um, a book that he's got called The Lives of Illustrious Men. It's a book very large that talks about various early church fathers and many of the traditions that we understand in the church come from this. And just read this in the lens of what we've heard from 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Because it says from Jerome about Peter. Peter, 
having preached to the dispersion, the believers that in circumcision, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That was literally the churches that first Peter was addressed to. Peter, having preached there, pushed on to Rome in the second year of Claudius to overthrow Simon Magus. And he held the sacerdotal chair there for 25 years until the last, that is the 14th year of Nero. That's 67 AD. At his hands, he received the crown of martyrdom, being nailed to the cross with his head toward the ground and his feet raised on high, asserting that he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner of, as his Lord. And so I just give you that for, that's one of the kind of prevailing thoughts from an author, Brant Petrie, that says basically this is a letter written by Peter, probably, and it's a bit speculative, and I haven't studied it quite as much as I should, but have saying that he's writing this letter to dispel the heresies within Rome against this Simon Magus. And when you start to see that, it actually does make a lot of sense. And there's way more parallels we could go into. The last thing is that because this is a letter that seems to have this sort of early Catholicism, and it seems to, at least in the modern sense, not be written by Peter, it's a letter that hasn't gotten as much attention as other letters, but I would argue is very important, um, especially doctrinally, especially for what we understand as the Catholic faith. And so there's a few theological points that I think is, are worthy to look at. Basically, the first is this concept of divinization. You see that in 2 Peter chapter 1, right off the bat. We'll talk about what that means. There are theological points of doctrine of inspiration and interpretation of Scripture, 2 Peter 1, uh, verses 18 to 21 in particular. There are key doctrinal points in this about the final judgment, the coming of Christ, what's called the parousia, and the end of the world. You see that in the third chapter. And then as well as doctrinal points about the new heaven and the new earth, the final things that we're going to see at the end of this world, and that's at the end of 2 Peter. And so those are some pretty big important points that we'll go through as we go through the text. Now the text itself is fairly short, just three chapters. The first chapter has this call to virtue and a call to follow the apostles. The second chapter uh, is really just very stern, strict condemnation of false teachers and false prophets. This is where Peter really goes after um, the, word, the, the heretics, and he actually uses the word that we get the form of heresy from. And then the third chapter is all about the second coming and the end of the world. What's going to happen? So with that into the background, let's actually read the text, and we'll be able to read the entirety of the text and comment on it as we go. So the second letter of Peter, chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Okay, so who is this letter to? Those who have obtained a faith of equal standing. What does that mean? Those that have been baptized. He is writing a letter to those within the church saying that there is an equality among all believers, among all Christians. And he's actually wishing them, as he does in others, that there is grace and peace be to you. And this is the same greeting as he has in 1 Peter. Now, the next part of 2 Peter is a very important passage where we understand this concept of divinization because he reads chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these things are yours and abound, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be the more zealous to confirm your call in election. For if you do this, you will never fall. So there will richly be provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these things, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to arouse you by way of a reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. And I will see to it that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Okay. So in that first section, we see at the very end, Peter is saying, this is what I'm doing. I'm writing this to remind you. And he basically says that I am going to die soon. The language is very uh, concrete, especially in the Greek, about the sort of tabernacle of his body will be, will be departing. And that he has this sense that he um, knows that his time is near. So some have pointed out this seems almost like a last will and testament of Peter. And he says that the Lord has showed that he is going to be depart and he wanted the church to recall these things. So he's saying, guys, this is an important letter and I need you to know and be reminded of all of these things. Well, what things? Well, he says everything, and this is back to verse three, everything that pertains to life and godliness through knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So he's basically saying that everything that God has shared through his son, Jesus Christ, he wants to share life, godliness, knowledge, even his own glory and excellence. So God wants to share his very own glory and excellence. And then there is a line in verse four, which is one of the most important lines in Christianity, I would hold. And he says that he wants to share all of this glory and excellence so that you might escape the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. To become partakers of the divine nature. If you actually go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, this line is brought up as one of the reasons why God becomes man. One of the fundamental reasons for what we call the incarnation is to become partakers of the divine nature, to share the nature of God himself. And that word partaker means is actually Greek koinonia, to share communion with the nature of God. Well, what's the nature of God? Well, the nature of God is perfect love and perfect life. We hear in another place in the scripture that God is love. And so the Trinity, um, 
is this perfect exchange of love. And so there's a great importance to understand what the word person means and what nature means. These are philosophical terms, but they help us understand what's being talked about. The question of person asks the question of who. The question of nature asks the question of what. So if we say who is God, we would say God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is three persons. If we ask what is God, well, God is love. This perfect exchange of love. And actually then what Peter is saying is that what is the purpose of our life? is to become like God. Does that mean we become divine persons? No, but it does mean we take on divine nature. Perfect exchange of life and love. And this is absolutely the reason that the word becomes flesh, to make us like him. And now if you haven't heard this, it sometimes seems almost, um, sometimes gets made fun of in, in different areas. It almost seems like, um, like a Mormon idea, that you become your own God. And there's a lot of misunderstanding of this, but this is what the church has taught from the beginning. It's actually been emphasized a little bit more strongly in the Eastern uh, Christian church. And the word is divinization, or actually the Greek word is theosis, to become like God, to take on his nature. And that's a process of internal change. And how does that process change? How does that work? What well, works through virtue first and foremost. That's why after this, Peter has this whole list. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And then he has this whole list, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, ultimately love. Because what is the nature of God? The nature of God is love. So it's actually an ascending list that we need to become like God. Again, if you actually open up the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and it talks about the purpose and the role of virtue in our lives, there's a quote from an early church father that says, the purpose of virtue is to become like God. That is a huge and crazy statement, that to practice virtue is to make us more like God more loving, more giving of ourselves. And so we need to take our faith and we need to practice virtue. And with that virtue, we need to add knowledge. That knowledge should give us a greater self-control, give us a steadfastness, a sense of courage in this. And then we need this sense of godliness. The word is eusebia. Sometimes it's referred to as religion. And then the next word is actually brotherly affection. The word is Philadelphia, brotherly love, mutual affection. But even mutual affection isn't the height of the nature of God. Then it's ultimately agape. Love itself, the love of God himself. So this is what Christians are called to. To become like God. To be divinized. To take on the divine nature. This itself right here makes this book absolutely essential in the understanding of the Christian faith. And what we're called to do. An internal transformation. And that's important because he's talking about internal issues within the church, especially heresies, coming and denying this in many ways. And so he also then says that whoever lacks these things, that virtue, that self-control, brotherly love, is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten that he was cleansed by his sins. That baptism is what starts this process of which then I can grow in holiness. 
And he says you need to make sure that you um, confirm this call so that one, you don't fall away, but also it says to keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To effectively share the gospel with others, we have to be virtuous. We have to become like God. And I think this is a real problem in our church that we, we think to be holy is just to do these external things. And it's missing the point of internal transformation to become like God. So probably the most important thing in this entire book is this first chapter on this idea of divinization or theosis to become partakers of the divine nature, the nature of love. And in support of this, he then goes and references eyewitness testimony. So chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We heard this voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word made sure. You will do well to pay attention to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So Peter is drawing upon eyewitness testimony to say, yes, we were there. When? The transfiguration. This is what he's calling upon, the gospel story of the transfiguration, where Jesus is transfigured before them, becomes dazzling white. It's Peter, James, and John on this holy mountain, and they see what? The nature of God. They see him as he actually is. And why does God show them this? To show them that this is what they're called to be. This is the glory that God wants to share, this glory of sonship, this glory of the nature of God with all of humanity. And Peter's saying, this isn't a myth. This is real. We saw this. And listen to me and my testimony. And then it says, you will pay, you will do well to pay attention to this. It says, we have the prophetic word made sure. Pay attention to this as a lamp shining in a dark place. This is very subtle, but super important because what he's drawing upon there is Psalm 119, which is referring to the word of God, namely scripture. That it says in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. And now Peter is saying, pay attention to our word. Who is our? Who is the we? Peter, James, and John. The apostles share the prophetic word of God that we should pay attention to as a lamp in a light, dark place. Saying the words, the preaching of the apostles is equivalent to the level of scripture. That it is the authoritative word of God, actually, is what we can say. And this is what the Catholic Church has always proclaimed, that the word of God is a person, Jesus Christ. And we understand the deposit of faith, that what we're supposed to believe in in the truth of Revelation is the oral preaching, what we call tradition, the oral proclamation, 
and then the scriptures, so that the apostles preaching, they preach infallibly. It's the word of God passed through them. And he's saying, pay attention to this until the morning star rises in your heart. It's a beautiful line saying, until you come to know the rising of Jesus Christ in your own heart. To listen to these words until you you bear the resurrection of Christ in your own soul. Until you meet Christ internally. Pay attention to this because this is our vision. Life with God forever. And the words of the apostles, the preaching of the apostles, we can say is the word of God orally. And then he says, scripture. You must understand this. That no prophecy of scripture. Scripture refers to the writings No prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So he's speaking to that we understand scripture as being inspired by the Holy Spirit. God breathed that the words of scripture are in fact the words of God in the words of men. But so is the apostolic preaching is the words of God in the words of men. But also that this interpretation of scripture is not our own to interpret. That this charism to understand and interpret scripture is not up to us at the end of the day, especially when there's questions. Who is it up to? The apostles, the church, Peter, James, and John, right? This is what the church has understood of scripture, tradition, and magisterium. That the teaching authority of the apostles, Peter in union with the apostles, or the successor of Peter, the Pope, in union with the bishops, have the ability to interpret scripture. That it's not our own interpretation. Again, a very important... Now you can see why people kind of say, well, this seems like early Catholicism. This must have been written much later. Well, again, perhaps the Pope believed the Catholic faith from the very beginning. What a crazy idea, huh? That the Pope is Catholic, and he wrote this. So the next part then, Peter is writing in chapter 2 against the false prophets. And this is where he just kind of of goes off on these guys for being false prophets, false teachers, and bringing in destructive heresies. Chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people. So just even before we start there, he's saying... We pay attention to our prophetic word, and at the same time, there will also be other words, false words. That's why this letter is just as applicable 2,000 years ago as it is today. That to listen to the voice of the apostles versus false voices. So chapter 2, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their licentiousness, and because of them the way of truth will be reviled. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words, from their own condemnation has not been idle, and their destruction has not been asleep. And so these false prophets, false teachers, are bringing destructive heresies. What sort of things are they bringing in? Licentiousness. Freedom in the sense of not freedom in the true sense, but you can do whatever you want. And greed, the desire for greed. Have you ever thought or it's possible that there are Christians who actually preach the gospel for their own profit? 
seems crazy, right? Except we see this in our modern day. <laughs> and just as it's in our modern day, yes, yeah, so it was in the early church. Then Peter says 2 verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels when they sin, sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to the pits of the deepest darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven other persons, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction and made them an example to those who were ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the licentiousness of the wicked, for by what the righteous man saw and heard as he lived among them, he was vexed in his righteous soul day after day with their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So what is Peter saying there? God will punish. He's punished the angels. He punished the world at the time of the flood. He punished Sodom and Gomorrah. He will punish again. What will he punish? Especially licentiousness. This sort of free reign of lust and greed and envy, indulging in defiling passion, right? Going against sort of the sexual moral teachings of the church. This is things that could actually bring, and he's saying will bring, destruction. And then those that despise authority, lacking to understand the true authority instituted by our Lord, especially the, the authority of the apostles, the teaching authority. So he's saying, guys, pay attention. There will be punishment. God didn't spare the angels. He didn't spare the world in the time of Noah. There will be punishment. But at the same time, it's a call for the righteous. Says to those that are living in the midst of a time where there is licentiousness and greed and lust and giving into disordered passions, the righteous can be saved. So the Lord, that's verse 9, is beautiful. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly man from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment. God knows how to save. God knows how to punish. He will. But for those who listen to the words of Peter and to listen to the words of the church, he knows how to save you. So very important. He continues on in verse uh, 10. Bold and willful, they are not afraid. This is talking about the heretics. Bold and willful, they are not afraid to revile the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a reviling judgment upon them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and killed, reviling in matters of which they are ignorant, will be destroyed in the same destruction with them, suffering wrong for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their dissipation, carousing with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. 
but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So Peter's just laying it on thick <laughs> that um, basically we cannot be okay with adultery, greed, disordered passions. This is not what God is calling us to. It makes us irrational that we're creatures of instinct, not of the nature of God, which is to know and to love. And so he really does lay it on thick. And then he even draws upon this example from the book of Numbers. Balaam was this prophet who was told to, who's actually paid to curse the people of Israel, but he couldn't because he had to listen to the voice of God, which was to bless the people of Israel. And God told Balaam in Numbers not to go with these people, and he decided to go anyway. And it took the donkey seeing that he was following uh, not the way of God to actually speak to him. So it was a, a story in the Old Testament to show just how crazy of an idea it is to go against God. That a donkey <laughs> who can't speak, who has no intellect, sees it more clearly than this prophet of God. He continues even more. These, referring again to the heretics, to the ones who are following disordered passions, who are despising genuine authority of the apostles. He says in verse 17, These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the deepest gloom of darkness has been reserved. For uttering loud boasts of folly, they entice with licentious passions of the flesh men who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a man, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overpowered. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, the dog turns back to his own vomit, and the sow is washed only to wallow in the mire. So he uses a beautiful analogy, waterless springs. They're useless. They're ineffective. They promise freedom, but they're slaves to corruption. This is the teaching of the church that when we sin, we become slaves to sin. There's a sense that the sin is its own punishment. That if I continually choose these things, I just naturally become a slave. Whereas they're trying to promise freedom, but this freedom of licentiousness and disordered desires isn't real freedom. It destroys you. It corrupts you. And then he says, this is really powerful. It would have been better for them not to know this way because he's talking to people that are baptized. Heretics in the truest sense, a post-baptismal denial of the faith. Someone that knew the person of Christ and is now then rejecting it. And so he quotes the book of Proverbs, the dog turns back to its own vomit, eating the flesh of the Lord in the Eucharist, turning back to dog's vomit. You can think of that as an analogy. This is not good. <laughs> Whoever Peter is speaking to, he's clearly got issues with them, and he's warning them to repent, to return to ordered desires and passions and authority, to seek that internal transformation. And this is why who he's writing to for us today is less important, because this is the perpetual call of the church to avoid heresy, 
to avoid certain sects that would try to take you away from the constant teaching authority of the church, which we must trust. All right, chapter three. He then moves and begins to talk about, well, what's the end? Why do we need this internal transformation? Well, because there is an end coming. Chapter three. This is now the second letter that I have written to you, beloved, and in both of them I have aroused your sincere mind by way of a reminder. So again, just to hear it, this is where we see very, there's no reason to doubt the text here when it says this is the second letter. Is he talking about 1 Peter? Do we know for sure? No, we don't. But that would be the reasonable and rational thought that this is Peter writing, again, a second letter. You can say a second encyclical. That you should remember the, I've aroused your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter's saying, listen to the apostles. Listen to them. He goes back again this statement. First of all, you must understand this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own passions and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately ignore this fact that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago, and an earth formed out of water and by means of water, through which the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist have been stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And so he's saying that there have always been people that have denied the authority of God, scoffers, that in the last days, and that's that word eschaton, he's both referring to the time after the ascension of Jesus, but ultimately, yes, to these very last days, there have been people that have scoffed. And he draws upon since the fathers fell asleep. Again, this isn't a reference to the apostles. This is a reference to the Old Testament patriarchs that all the way back to the beginning, and he quotes, or is drawing upon Genesis, the creation of the world out of water. Um, and then the destruction of the world through water, through the flood. He's talking about the Old Testament patriarchs, that there have always been people that have scoffed and that there will be eventually a day of judgment and destruction. What he starts to go in here is that the ultimate destruction of the world, as God promised in the book of Genesis, will not come by water, but will come by fire. And that's where he says, chapter 3, verse 8, But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is forbearing toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and all the works that are upon it will be burned up. So we see this phrase just as Paul was saying in Second Thessalonians that the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It's going to be quick and sudden, the end of the world. That what seems like delay in our time is not real delay. God knows exactly what he's doing, and it will catch us off guard. 
and he will destroy the world. The elements will be dissolved by fire. There will be a purgation, <laughs> uh, a sense where all will be lost except what? We'll kind of get to that to the end here. But that their world will end. And that why the delay? Because it seemed, and there's a lot of debate of whether the early church thought the world was going to end or not. Why the delay? Well, Peter is also recalling what Paul is saying is that the delay is for your benefit, that God wants everybody to come to repentance. He wants more souls to come to him. And so it's for a benefit. And this also fact is very beautiful. With the Lord one day as is, as is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So if you think about this, uh, a great teacher of mine had this as a meditation. If that's true, as if one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day, Jesus rose from the dead two days ago in God's time. Two days ago. There's no delay. Because God is outside of time. So we see it as delay, but Peter is reminding us, and this is the constant doctrinal truth of the church, that the Lord will come again to judge the living and the dead. And that's what Peter is talking about. There will be a promised coming, what's called the parousia, the final judgment. He says in verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of persons ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be kindled and dissolved and the elements will melt with fire? But according to his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter says, what are you supposed to do if we know this is coming? We're supposed to live and wait in holiness and godliness. We're supposed to do everything he told us to do in the first chapter. To become like God, to take on his nature, to practice virtue, to be ready because this fire is coming. And I think there's a beautiful reflection that what does the end of the world look like? Well, it's just the fire of God's love because fire has been representative of not just destruction, but also good things, passion, right? To think about the fire of passion and to think about the Holy Spirit that came in tongues of fire. So I think it's a beautiful reflection to think that the end of the world is just going to be the coming of God. And if we have taken on his nature, if we've come to understand the fire of God's love and have become habituated to this, we'll be able to stand in the fire. But if not, it will be burned away, there will be great suffering, and we will experience tragic loss. This is the same idea of purgatory in a sense too, that we must be purged as by fire. And so if we're not perfectly virtuous at the time of the Lord's coming, that too will be purged away through trial, through difficulty. And there's even Old Testament reference to this. Of You see in the book of Daniel, these three men who are righteous are thrown into the fire. And who's with them? This fourth, like a son of man. They're able to withstand the fire of God's love. And so the fire of God's love is going to come, and it's going to judge us, and it's going to literally transform the world. And this is what's interesting. The elements will be melt with fire, and then he says in verse 13, very interesting, we wait for a new heavens and a new earth. Historically, the Catholic faith had often, for many times, talked about the last things of this world, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. <clears throat> These certainly are last things that need to be studied and talked about, but it's not the last, last things, because we've often overmissed this important point 
from 2 Peter that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Because at the final judgment, at the final coming, there will be a resurrection of the body where we will exist in bodily form. And so the earth isn't going to be destroyed as such. It is going to be transformed into the new heavens and the new earth. Just as all of our works need to be transformed from the earthly to the heavenly. And so the understanding of what's called eschatology, the study of the last things, that there will be a final judgment, an end of the world by fire, of which then it will bring in and usher in a final and perpetual age of a new heaven and a new earth. This is what we're actually made for. And Peter says, how do we prepare for this? Faith and virtue. Ultimately, virtue working to that highest virtue, of which Paul himself says there is nothing greater, love, agape, charity. That we have to become like God because God is coming one way or the other. We must become like God internally before the end of the world. And then chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you wait for these, be zealous to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. The coming of the end of the world should not scare us. We should be at peace and actually desire it in a sense. We pray for it. Thy kingdom come. That if we are not following disordered passions, but actually taking on the divine nature, true love, we're wait at peace. And then we says, and count the forbearance of our Lord as salvation. So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom giving him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters. There are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So a very famous passage where Peter is saying, yes, the things Paul writes are confusing. And they can be misinterpreted, and they've been misinterpreted from the beginning. But if we misinterpret them to allow for licentiousness, to allow for saying that Paul is not talking about following genuine authority, you're twisting them to your own destruction. That we need to read Paul in light of all of the apostolic authority of the entirety of the church. And so, yes, Paul is hard to understand, and Peter even references that. But he's saying we have to listen to the teaching authority of the church for Paul and all the scriptures, all the scriptures. He ends, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, beware lest you be carried away by the error of lawless men and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This last line is also very important because Peter says something that corresponds with what he says in the beginning. Grow in grace and knowledge. What it means to be saved and to grow in holiness means that we can actually become holier. Internal transformation is what salvation is all about. To be set free in baptism, as he talks about in the beginning, obtain a faith of equal standing, that we were cleansed from our sins, but then we need to grow in grace. It is possible for us to grow in grace, to become sanctified, to become holier, to become like God. 
This is also a very clear Catholic teaching that is not shared by some of our non-Catholic Christian brothers, especially as it relates to Paul, saying that we don't need to grow in grace. It's all external. And yet Peter is again drawing upon Paul to say, nope, internal transformation. Don't be carried away by false teachers, by false prophets, by denial of authority. Grow in grace and knowledge. And that will lead you to that day of the final coming, the day of eternity, when we will take on that divine nature in full forever. Perfect life and perfect love. That's the heaven that we're called to be a part of, the new heaven and the new earth. So with that, you can see that Second Peter actually has quite a bit. And if we just kind of throw it off as not that important or it doesn't matter who's writing this, we lose a lot of the force of the argument here. And you start to see this is a very important letter and a very beautiful letter and actually kind of shows us that, wow, we're capable of quite a bit through God's grace and he expects a lot of us. So with that, we'll continue on one last week. Next week, we will cover the very, very short letter of Jude and see what uh, the apostle Jude has to offer for us. So let us pray that we grow in virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and ultimately put all these things together with agape love through our Lord Jesus Christ in union with the Father and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of RTB. If you have questions you would like answered on the podcast, you can email them to Father Tim at tmergen at uwcatholic.org. That's T-M-E-R-G-E-N at uwcatholic.org. Thanks, and be assured of my prayers for you as you read the Bible.